minister at the Capella Bar Corrugations. Uh, and there's so many people here today that I haven't actually met before. It's great to see uh, this church family growing. Uh, and so it'll be great after the service to, uh, to, to chat to you, to get to know you. Um, we're going through the book of 1 Samuel. And here we arrive at a series of chapters, chapter 21 to 23, uh, where David is on the run. Uh, and so uh, because it's such a big chunk, again, we're not going to kind of spend a lot of time at one particular point. We're actually going to be moving around. It feels like the way that I'm approaching this passage is very much the way that David is spending his time in the passage, kind of running around it a lot. We're going to be starting in the middle and then at the beginning and then go kind of to the end. So hopefully you can follow me around. But uh, let's come before God now as we uh, ask him for his help to, uh, yeah, help us to understand Mighty God, Lord, we give thanks to you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is precious, it is sweet, uh, Lord, and that it is light to our eyes. And so we come asking for your help, not simply to understand, uh, but Lord, to change us so that we might be equipped uh, as your people, your saints, uh, in the service of our King Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I went to a Bible college called Sydney Missionary and Bible College. And uh, there is a campus there called Robertsdale Campus. And it's named after two missionaries who were martyred uh, for, in the service of Jesus. One of them was a bloke called San, Stan Dale. He was an Australian guy. I think we've got a photo of him there. Uh, in 1968, he had been bringing the good news of the Lord Jesus to an unreached group in Dutch New Guinea, which is now Papua. Um, and he was killed by a shower of uh, arrows shot from one of the local tribes there. Uh, when they discovered his body, they also found his New Testament nearby, and uh, the New Testament had a spear lodged into it. And so when they opened it up and inspected it, the point of the blade of the spear stopped in Matthew sixteen twenty four. So what it reads, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now that is a, uh, a tragic and yet an astonishing story, isn't it? Uh, and and it's, a, it's an example of someone who lived life on this earth as a stranger, uh, that the kingdoms of this world were opposing the work of the kingdom of God. And for Standale, it cost him his life. Suffering, even suffering to the point of death, is a natural part of the Christian ecosystem. Uh, whether we like it or not, there are just too many stories that say the otherwise, isn't it? it aren't there? And, and maybe that's particularly true for you. Uh, you might be here today in such a season like that, uh, be it you're part of a family where you're the only one who trusts the Lord Jesus and the rest of the family, it's not like they kind of shoot a spear at you or, or, or an arrow at you, but they're certainly antagonistic to you, you feel on the outside. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it may just be that you constantly just come up against disease and, and poor health and, and we suffer while we're in this earth. 
Um, now, we Christians spend a fair bit of time thinking about why we do that. And that is a very good question. It's an obvious question. Uh, and lo- uh, next week, Russell is actually going to be talking a little bit about that. What I want us to focus on today is how we suffer. How do we suffer? And, and that brings us to the passage that we have in front of us today, chapters 21 to 23 of 1 Samuel. David, as you remember, has been anointed uh, as the, the next king of Israel. Um, but the problem with that is he's since become a target. Uh, a target. We probably don't need that one just yet. Um, uh, he's become a target, particularly a target of King Saul, who uses every resource in his kingdom to try to do away with David. And so you see David just constantly on the run. How does David live in the kingdom of Saul? You can kind of translate it to us today. How, how do we, as citizens of another kingdom, live in the kingdoms of this world? How, in other words, do we suffer well? I just want to look at three things today. And as I said, we're not going to kind of look at them chronologically. We're going to be moving around. But three things that I think are if we understand and if the Holy Spirit applies to our hearts, helps us to do this. Um, the first thing is simply this, is simply we're not to be surprised by it. We're not to be surprised by it. Now, if you're in a particularly difficult season at the moment, that's probably not much comfort to you. Uh, you probably just kind of want to get out of suffering. Yet our expectations on the degree to which we should suffer actually can either help or hinder as, uh, us as we suffer. Because the reality is Australians have this kind of idea that, well, we shouldn't really have to suffer too much. Uh, I was listening to an ABC podcast recently with Lee Sales. It's a really good podcast on Richard Feidler's conversations. One of the things she said, which I found really interesting, was that she felt that as an Australian, you really, really go through one season of suffering. Suffering doesn't really define much of your life. And let's face it, Australia has for the last 30 years... Uh, undergone incredible economic kind of development. We haven't had a recession in the last 30 years or so. We, we have wonderful access to health care. Most of us here today have not seen war. We're not used to suffering. Yet for Christians, the Bible is very clear that we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. And that's actually what we see, particularly in these chapters. Uh, as I said, David is running, he's constantly on the run. Uh, I'd love to have bought a map, but just listen to where he runs from. He runs from Gibeah to Nob, from Nob to Gath, from Gath to a cave, from a cave to Moab, from Moab to a forest, from a forest to a desert. He's just constantly moving because for David, life is not safe, it's not secure, he has no place to rest. And it's in the context of David running that you come to this pretty horrific episode in the kingdom of Saul. We're going to begin our time in the middle chapter, chapter 22. Um, Chapter 22, you see Saul is paranoid. He's paranoid about David. Have a look at chapter 22, verse 7. Saul said, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have conspired against me? No one tells me my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie in wait for me 
as he does today. Saul is paranoid that he's not getting the intel that they have. And so, the the person sitting there who's able to provide it is a shady figure called Doag the Edomite. You see, in the very next verse... Uh, in, in verse, tw- uh, is it 21? No, 11? No, 9. Verse 9, Doag the Edomite pops up and he has some intel about David. David has been to uh, Ahimelech uh, who gave him some bread, gave him the sword, inquired of God. And, and Doag the Edomite knew this because he saw David in chapter 21 and so he, he basically dobs on David. Having been given the intel by Doeg the Edomite, uh, Saul calls for Ahimelech, this priest. And after a brief exchange with Saul, this is Saul's verdict on the priest. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. That's terrible from the king of Israel, killing a priest, but it gets much worse because Doeg the Edomite is a pretty shady, horrific kind of character and we see what he does in verse 18. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down, this is uh, Ahimelech and his family. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod that were priests. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of priests, with its men, its women, its children, its infants and its cattle and donkeys and sheep. Now, that is just sheer brutality, isn't it? And sadly, we actually need to pause here for a moment just to understand the depths of depravity in this verse. Because if you were to look in chapter 15 of of 1 Samuel, Saul is instructed to totally kill the Amalekites, kill all the men, all the women, all the children, because they're enemies of God, they're evil, they're wicked. Yet he doesn't do it. And yet here... He's implicit in the total destruction, not of God's enemies, but of God's priests. Now, he didn't order their total destruction. Doag, the Edomite, kind of just decided to do it on his own. But these two men start killing the people of God. You know, this is that that moment in the story. You know that moment in Star Wars when Anakin Skywalker fully becomes Darth Vader? mask comes on, transformation is complete, that's what's going on here. You actually see these men for who they are. These men are what the New Testament call antichrists. Antichrists are opposed to the Christ and who is the Christ? It is David, the one who is God's anointed. And here's how this relates to us. You might be kind of thinking, why shouldn't I be surprised by this? I am surprised by this. Why shouldn't I be surprised? Well, here's how it relates to us. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, this is what John teaches the church. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. See, John is writing to the church in the first century and he tells them that the Antichrist is coming, the one opposed to the Christ who will attack God's people. And he says, this has always been the case, there's always been Antichrist. Think of, uh, think of Pharaoh in Egypt, Antichrist killing God's people. Think of Herod 
against Jesus, killing the people. This is where Saul and Doag fit. They're antichrist. And John tells us, the church, don't be surprised that they come. This is how we know that it's the last hour. This is how we know that we are kind of awaiting the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, here in Australia, we perhaps find it difficult to see the Antichrist at work because not many Christians are being killed in mass in Australia. But I assure you, our brothers and sisters in Korea, in Yemen, in China, in North Africa, in the Middle East, they very much are familiar with these Antichrist figures. They are very much familiar with what John is saying, that this shouldn't surprise us. And Jesus himself says this, doesn't he? In, one, in John 15, 20, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. See, suffering, as sad and as difficult and as evil as much of it is, shouldn't surprise us. And in this particular case, it's actually a specific type of suffering. It's suffering for the sake of Christ, isn't it? And see, we don't experience that with knives or guns, but we do experience it in smaller ways, don't we? Maybe you experience it in your workplace, where because you're a Christian, you're perhaps just kind of on the outer, you're not considered for that promotion. I see, again, maybe it's kind of going on in your families. It can kind of happen in a whole lot of small little ways and you feel it and it bites. And part of actually us living with that is not being surprised by it. That's the first thing. So we're not to be surprised by suffering. Um, But we need more than that, don't we, Uh, to live with it. We need more than just not being surprised by it. And there is more in these chapters. See, smattered throughout these chapters, we also taste and see the goodness of God. Uh, And you see this in a whole bunch of different ways. And this is what David does. He tastes and sees the goodness of God. Um, You see it in the way God provides for him. So now we're going to go from 22 back to 21. David is on the run uh, and he runs to Ahimelech, the priest at Nob, and he's after provisions and he says in verse 3, now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now, David isn't displaying many manners here, but clearly um, he's, he's in a panic. He's in need and all Ahimelech the priest had is this bread of the presence. Now, if you were to have a look at Leviticus, go home, check that out, you'll see that that bread is actually for the priests. And yet Ahimelech, he's attuned to David's need here. David isn't a priest and so Ahimelech bypasses tradition for the sake of provision, doesn't he? He wants to help David, he gives him bread and he gives him Goliath's sword. Now, these are kind of small details. You kind of think, well, you know, did he really need to include that? Yet, how often do we receive the goodness of God and His provision in small details? Maybe you've had it yourself. You've, you've gone somewhere and you received bad news and yet, while you were there, there is a Christian brother or sister right there with you in that moment. A small provision seems insignificant but it's a provision isn't it maybe it's uh you're 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 short on money uh, and all of a sudden you manage to receive it somehow more than what you're expecting it's a provision i heard about this during the week one of our members from capella had a seizure 
Uh, and he's had two in the last month. The first was in his chair in the living room, the second was in his bed. Much better in bed or in a chair than on their staircase. Do you see just the small details where we see the provision of God? It doesn't get us out of the suffering, but it, it sustains us in the suffering. Tasting and seeing the goodness of God. You don't just see it in the provision in this passage, you also see it in God's providence in this passage. What do I mean? What's providence? Well, let's have a look at, at, at what it looks like and then it'll help us to understand. Um, you see this in, in chapter 22, verse 1. Um, David is at a cave in chapter 22, verse 1. Um, and eventually he's joined there by his family and he's worried for his family. He doesn't think they're safe there. And so, verse 3, he takes them to Mizpah in Moab and says to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come stay with you until I learn that God, what God will do for me? So we left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed as long as David was in the stronghold. David wants safety for his parents. And he goes to Moab. Now, Moab are an enemy of Israel. Uh, in chapter 18, Saul had fought against Moab. And David takes his parents to Moab. Now, is that a good idea? Well, maybe, maybe not. But here we actually see the providence of God because... If you know a little bit about David's family tree, you'll know his great-grandmother was a woman called Ruth, a Moabitess. And you can't help get the feeling that his, his Moabite bloodlines come in pretty handy in this moment, don't they? Because rather than the king just telling him to get away, well, no, he welcomes them. You see, this moment when Ruth moved from Moab to Israel, that happened way earlier, long before David was born, God is controlling for it to be very helpful in this moment. See, that is the providence of God, the way that God orders events in history for the good of His people. Uh, I heard uh, a story uh, not long ago, I think I actually read it, um, of an English pilot, pilot flying during the Second World War uh, and he bumped into a Jew and the Jew needed to be rescued and so he flew him uh, to a town uh, that the Jew wanted to go to escape and, and then he left the Jew and obviously thought, well, I'm never going to see him again. Uh, the pilot flew back to the UK uh, and then during the Battle of Britain was shot down uh, and he suffered a fair, fair bit of injury and the doctors at the time just said, there's no hope for this guy, he's just going to have to kind of you know, live the rest of his life just in hospital. Um, it so turned out that at the time of the crash, there was a man in the UK who was a heart surgeon. Uh, and so he heard that there was a man in trouble and came to the hospital and, uh, and did the surgery. And when the pilot opened his eyes, who did he see but the Jew that he'd saved? That is the providence of God and that is what David tastes and sees in the midst of his suffering. He tastes and sees God's goodness in his provision, in his providence and finally in his word. Right throughout the passage while Saul is not hearing anything from God, David is getting his messages from God non-stop. Chapter 22 verse 5, Gad the prophet gives him God's word to go back to Judah. Chapter 23 verse 3, God gives him word to attack the Philistines. Chapter 23, verse 10, God gives him word that the uh, Kelleyites will, will hand him over to Saul. Chapter 23, verse 17, 
Jonathan reminds David of God's word that one day he'll be king. See, God gives David his word to encourage and guide him right throughout his suffering. That's the privilege we enjoy as God's people too, isn't it? The, 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 the soothing balm of God's word on our suffering. I've lost count the number of times where I could remember a particular devotion or some scripture or a friend quoting me words from scripture that reminded me of God's love, his presence in the midst of suffering. Taste and see that the Lord is good, this passage is is saying. Because that's exactly what David says in the psalm that he wrote while he was in the cave. If you want to remember the psalm that um, we had read out earlier, Psalm 34, uh, it was actually written in the cave. Actually, no, it wasn't written in the cave, it was written in Gath while he was pretending to be mad. Um, Taste and see the Lord is good, blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. See, David knows the goodness of God. It doesn't get him out of his suffering, but it sustains him in his suffering. So don't be surprised at suffering. Taste and see God's goodness in suffering. And finally, final thing that helps us is simply the knowledge that it's not for nothing. Our suffering is not for nothing. See, our suffering might be caused by great evil, but it's never for nothing. We don't suffer in vain. God sovereignly always uses it for the good purposes of his plans and his people. And we actually see that in this passage, but we actually see it in a pretty grim way. Let me take you back to chapter 22, where Doag the Edomite has killed all the people in Nob, all the priests, the town there. Now, that is, a, that is an evil and gruesome event. Saul and Doag are guilty before God for that one. And yet, even in the midst of that evil, God is fulfilling his word. If we were to go back and have a look, I think we actually have it, chapter 2, verse 23, is it? Uh, Or 33? Remember God's word that came to Eli at the beginning of 1 Samuel? Remember that the priests at the time were corrupt. And this is God's word of judgment. Every one of you, so this is the priest, that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of their life. Now, that is a frightening word of judgment. And yet, in the evil actions of Saul and Doag, it's fulfilled. Now, if you're anything like me, you're not sure how to react to that because the whole episode is gruesome. And just kind of like, wow, this is, it's, it's a shocking thing. But God's judgment is always just. God's word never fails. And even in the evil work of Saul and Doag, he is doing what he said he will do. And see, that actually helps us in hardship. It helps us to know that no sickness we experience or hardship or injustice can get in the way of God doing his plans and working for the good of our people. It means that our suffering is never in vain. And we see this no more clearly than in the life and death of the Lord Jesus. You've probably heard this passage from Acts 2 before. 
Uh, Peter is preaching and he says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Who nailed Jesus to the cross? Well, the wicked men. They did it. But it was in accordance with God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge for the salvation of his people. See, Jesus doesn't suffer for nothing and his people don't. And what that does is it actually just gives us a sense of steeliness to endure in suffering. Again, it doesn't make our suffering go away, perhaps doesn't even kind of make it uh, feel less intense, but it does mean we're, we're not defeated by it. Our suffering isn't wasted. How do we live like David in the kingdom of Saul? How do we live in the kingdom of this world, a kingdom where God's people suffer? Well, we're told in this passage that we're to not be surprised by it, that we're to taste and see God's goodness in it and and to remember that it's not for nothing. See, that's how Stan Dale lived in the kingdom of Saul. That's how Standale lived in the kingdom of this world. See, he died at the hands of those who oppose the plans and purposes of God, but his suffering wasn't for nothing. Before he was killed, he was working on the translation of the New Testament into the language of the people he went to reach. And in 2010, 42 years after his death, the translation work that he began was completed. Now, Stan never saw that, uh, but if you jump on YouTube and maybe look for Stan Dale, um, you will see a video of the moment where this Papuan, Papuan tribe receives the New Testament. And you see just the joy that they experience as a result. Now, Stan Dale doesn't see that and his, parent, and his, his family uh, will not forget what happened, but it wasn't in vain, was it? See, we suffer... And we should not be surprised by it, but we should see God's goodness in it and know that it's not for nothing. And see, these are the things that we need to give us the resources to live like David in the kingdom of Saul. So let's pray that our King, the Lord Jesus, would help us with that. Mighty God and Heavenly Father, um, we come to you and these are really um, in some ways awful passages to read we see your anointed one david running the fear of his life we see uh, your failed king saul live out as an antichrist one who opposes your anointed one lord we see the brutality of doag the edomite who would kill your priests and lord we're reminded that we, as your people, citizens of your heavenly kingdom, live life in the kingdoms of this world, kingdoms like that of Saul. And Father, this means that life is often hard, it's difficult. And Father, indeed, for brothers and sisters, uh, Lord, in other parts of the world, it can cost them their life. Lord, we pray that you would equip us to endure Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, uh, not be surprised. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see 
and mouths to taste your goodness in the midst of our suffering. Just even those small moments of provision that are gifts from you. Ultimately, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you'd encourage us to know that no plan of man, however evil it is, or nothing, even the result of the fall and the sin and the affliction that we experience in this world, uh, can separate us from your love and can end your purposes and plans. And so, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with this. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, sing in response.